This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Danny Urbinder. Danny's a naturopath of 20 years experience, and he's worked in clinical practice, functional pathology, corporate health, the fitness industry, and tertiary education lecturing in nutritional biochemistry and clinical nutrition at several naturopathic colleges. As head of education at Bioceuticals and the driving force in both the birth and the growth of the education department of Bioceuticals, he's passionate about communicating the rapidly expanding body of exciting research in the field of functional and integrative medicine. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. Danny, today we're going to be talking about seborrheic dermatitis and a bit of a personal story. So I think first off, can you take our listeners through a little bit about what seborrheic dermatitis is? Uh, well, seborrheic dermatitis is an inflammatory skin condition. Um, it usually starts to appear in teenage years uh, where you tend to get a dry, flaky scalp. Uh, it can start to appear on the face, particularly um, around the nasolabial folds, around the forehead. And uh, it gets progressively worse as you as you get a bit older um, and can be quite, I suppose, a an annoying condition, and it certainly comes with its embarrassment as well as it starts to get worse and can be quite difficult to get on top of until you start to recognise some of the causes. And, uh, and that's where I suppose we have opportunities to address that and actually help to, uh, to improve the condition. I think it would be more embarrassing, as, the, as you say, when it presents in the teenage years when um, self-image is so important for self-confidence and and how people feel generally, um, how they interact with other people. What I think is interesting is, you know, the sort of, you get a, a condition like that has major peaks in infants less than three months old and then 40 to 60. And that's what the textbook says. But that's not what commonly occurs as your story suggests. No. Well, it's interesting because when I look back at my history, starting from birth, and I asked a few questions, I suffered from cradle cap. Yeah. In fact, there's a common cause there uh, with cradle cap and seborrheic dermatitis. I was an eczema sufferer. Um, I do have um, a family history of atopy in the family. Uh, but that seemed to settle down somewhat during my childhood years and come puberty. And I suppose there are hormonal changes mm. that occur then. There's probably some other factors that were at play, which um, I've explored and perhaps speculated on perhaps what contributed to that flare-up starting in my teenage years. And it really started with just a bit of dandruff, but it got worse than that. It became uh, something much more pronounced. Uh, you, you sort of get this sort of thick, scaly, uh, dry skin sort of flaking and, and oily. Uh, and then it sort of seems to progress down to the face and other areas as well. And as I said, it gets it gets progressively worse. So while you might sort of dismiss it when it's mild, even in your teenage years, it did get to the point where it becomes quite distressing. And indeed, this is one of the con 
confounding things with this condition is that it, it doesn't really have a defined box of diagnosis. It's often missed and often diagnosed as other things. Hmm. So, of course, the treatment thing goes awry. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, I mean, originally I just thought it was dandruff hmm. and used the typical anti-dandruff shampoos, which I would say actually didn't work at all. Um, and I sort of left it for a little while. Um, and then had it diagnosed um, by a skin specialist who recommended steroid treatment. And I, even at that age, I just wasn't keen on doing that. I thought there had to be another solution. So uh, I sort of, that was just about the time when I was exploring natural medicine as a career. So it's interesting some of the things I experimented with at that stage and mm. things that worked and things that didn't work. But, you know, see, this is a commonality and and... A medical mind would tell you, oh, but you're you're exploring things without a diagnosis. Mm. Well, hang on. <laughs> Even with a diagnosis, won't won't doctors be trying certain things and finding out what works and what doesn't and saying, you know, they'll get guidelines and that might work for a certain population, but it certainly won't work for everybody and you have to try other things. So it's, in, it's an interesting mindset about this sort of we are right. Mm. Um, however, I would like to point out to our listeners that for any diagnosis, you need a medical professional. Uh, once you have that diagnosis, well, you know the black box from which you can work and explore from. What I think is interesting about natural medicine is that it doesn't necessarily need a diagnosis. It supports a body, a, a, a set of symptoms. Mm. Um, so you don't necessarily need that diagnosis to treat if you like, to manage a condition? Well, I mean, it was obvious to me that while I had a, a skin condition that was uncomfortable and a little bit embarrassing, it was obvious it was it was not a severe condition. So I think that in my mind, I was comfortable to at least explore yeah. some of the options that I'd either read about or just to start applying some of the principles that I was learning about as I was starting to enter into my studies in atropathy, um, recognising that the gut would certainly play a role in this area. Um, I was certainly looking at ways of supporting liver function and helping with normal detoxification. So that was the beginning of my, I suppose, exploration into perhaps how I might address that condition with more, uh, I suppose, with more failures than success, especially early on. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, one other thing that interests me is, um, and I learned this years ago, just around the time of the name change, that it's uh, commonly infected with uh, an organism, a fungi, called used to be called Pityrosporum ovale or Pityrosporum species, but it had a name change uh, late nineties, and that's now called Malassezia furfur, or indeed, there's so many species. There's Malassezia dermatis or dermatitis. Um, Japonica, Restrictor. So there's there's quite a few of these species of the Malassezia mm. uh, genus that are involved. How then did you go on to treat? Did you initially look at antifungal type approaches or was it just more nourishing type approaches? I did look at antifungal approaches and had mixed success. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly, I'd used um, antifungal shampoos for the scalp and it did work, but it was only moderate in effect. Um, I didn't use any antifungals on my face. Uh, and oh, look, I mean, I suppose uh, there were there were certain treatments that I might have tried that might have been antifungal just incidentally. But as I started looking into this, with with these species of of fungus, we all have them on our skin. And it's very similar in concept to perhaps the ecology of the gut, which we're now looking at, so the microbiota. So we harbour what we would consider pathogenic organisms and we harbour what we consider probiotic or healthy organisms. That's probably a bit of a misnomer. Um, in, in fact, 
what we're looking at is perhaps the right balance and the mm. requirement of the right balance and what determines whether you have an outgrowth of a particular species and a die-off of another species really has to do a lot with what you're feeding those organisms. Yeah, terrain, yeah. Absolutely. And while I'm quite convinced that the gut and my gut has a lot to play with regards to my skin, it also has to do um, with the skin itself and what... I am feeding the organisms on my skin through my skin and particularly through the sebaceous glands. So um, I was very keen on sort of getting to that underlying cause and trying to address perhaps um, what is it about my sebaceous glands that perhaps is feeding these organisms that, uh, that would perhaps have, will result in this outgrowth and perhaps trigger an inflammatory response in my skin. So I don't consider that fungal infection a cause, rather it's an outcome of an underlying imbalance that I felt that I could address. So this is one of the interesting things about seborrheic dermatitis is that it's got to do with the sebum and the more sebum producing areas of the body, including the face, you know, there's other areas, back arms, armpits. Um, when you're looking at that, did you find that, say, excess sweating would play uh, a part in worsening it during your teenage years? It, uh, certainly raising my body temperature would. It would make it itchier. Uh, I imagine that what it did was open up the sebaceous glands a little bit more and allow for that flow of sebum through, um, which probably would have reacted more with the, uh, the the fungus itself. And that would have caused a bit of a flare-up. Um, and look, I suppose on the other side of the coin, there were things that perhaps helped it along, quite natural. So exposing my skin to sunlight, to UV light, uh, had the opposite effect. Um, having hot showers would have made it worse. Similar sort of principle. It sort of opened up the, the sebaceous glands and it just sort of caused a bit of a flare-up. So um, I always made sure that I sort of splashed my face with cold water and it seemed to settle things down. What about with washing? Um, did you find something like a hot shower followed by a cold shower? So a hot shower to get, you know, open up the pores, the old thing about opening up the pores, mm. um, cleaning the skin and then closing the pores. Did yeah. you find that worked well, Personally, or not? I found that hot showers just generally made it worse. Generally. So you'd just be standing in the shower, shower freezing in Melbourne. Well, you know, sometimes I was brave enough to have a cold shower. It actually felt really quite good after a cold shower. Yeah. I felt like um, it just settled you down. You feel alive in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, do in Melbourne, yes. <laughs> so it, it's even accepted in the medical literature about potential causes being things like zinc deficiency, B vitamin deficiency, normally something that doctors will gloss over. Mm. Tell me how important it was for you to look through the various nutrients um, and indeed, you know, what sort of supplements did you try? What worked? What failed? Yeah. So I, my investigations led me to believe that nutrients played a very big role in this and for a very specific reason. So there are certain nutrients that are considered beneficial for seborrheic dermatitis. Zinc, you mentioned B5, but B6 is another one. Right. And, and Now that's interesting. I'm going to get, I'm going to hook into that later. Well, maybe I'll hook into it before <laughs> you. <laughs> So the other and the other nutrient particularly was essential fatty acids, yep. and there was a bit of uh, information in the literature that referred to particularly omega threes. So the first sort of I suppose avenue that I went down was down the fish oil route, um, and what I actually found was that fish oils made it worse, right. not better, and it didn't make sense to me. But I gave away the uh, that the whole fatty acid treatment notion because fish oils made it worse. So I just thought maybe there's nothing in that. But obviously if fatty acids had triggered or made the seborrheic dermatitis worse, then fatty acids do have an influence and perhaps it's just a matter of choosing the right fatty acid. Yeah. 
And that started to lead me down the road of thinking, well, look, you know what? I remember when I was studying biochemistry, just the metabolism of fatty acids. And when we talk about fatty acid metabolism and the enzymes involved in fatty acid metabolism, you start to think, well, hang on. So what are the nutrients that support some of the key enzymes, in particular delta-60 saturase? And you've got zinc and B6 and, and magnesium. magnesium. <laughs> so I started dosing zinc and B6 and magnesium. The simplest yeah. supplement. And, and noticed some effect with zinc, B6 and magnesium. What I now believe, and I don't have any evidence to support this, but what I believe is that uh, I probably have a genetic predisposition to low-functioning delta-60 saturase. So there is, I suppose, a suboptimal function or expression of that particular enzyme resulting in poor fatty acid metabolism. And while that probably affects my omega-3 metabolism, how it uh, presents at least clinically, is probably more to do with the omega-6 metabolism. And omega-6 is interesting because we tend to avoid mm. omega-6. Mm. Uh, we tend to think it's the bad guy, it's pro-inflammatory. But in fact... Well, any polyunsaturated fat is if you oxidise it. Or if you oxidise you know. it. But when you look at um, omega-6 um, metabolism, um, it's interesting because it actually dovetails out into two different pathways. And one definitely does go down the pathway of inflammation where we actually lead to the production of the prostaglandin series 2. Uh, but it also breaks off into series 1 prostaglandins as well. And they are quite anti-inflammatory. But that successful branching off into those separate pathways is dependent on that enzyme that I just mentioned, that yeah. delta-60 saturates. And that reduces arachidonic acid as well, It reduces it? arachidonic acid and it upregulates the production of these series one prostaglandins. And then I started sort of looking into, well, what sort of fatty acids can I take on top of the zinc B6 and magnesium to help support my production of that series one prostaglandins? And that's when I looked at GLA type supplements. So mm. evening primrose oil. I've also looked at starflower oil as well. I've tried those. And as soon as I started taking those, so within about three or four weeks and I started to build my levels up, it all started to settle down. Really, And I would say that combination of zinc B6 and magnesium with GLA, a yep. GLA supplement, yep. um, probably managed that to about 90% improvement. So GLA, you know, the common old supplement that we all were aware of from the days of David Horobin, um, that's an interesting story, but um, uh, was evening primrose oil, which had around the 10%, but there were higher percentages in things like blackcurrant oil. And the funny thing is that these never really took off until the end of the era of the omega-6s. Uh, but I think it's really interesting that we so, we seem to have lost it, our way with the omega-6s. David Horobin was certainly given a lamb basting. Um, but I wonder if it was because we only concentrated on the oil and not the enzyme systems, which change it into the active constituents. And like I used to use zinc B6 magnesium as this simple little add-on. If if I just needed this extra little pin to, to make the mechanism work, you know, zinc B6 magnesium would often just be that little tie-in. Mm. I guess where I'm leading next though is what about other, uh, other fatty acids like omega-7? Yeah, that's interesting. So omega-7 is an interesting area. I have tried omega-7, but I tried it in conjunction with my existing evening primrose oil yep, yep. regime. Yep. So um, did I notice an improvement beyond that? I think that I probably didn't give it a fair shot. There's growing body of evidence to suggest that it 
probably would be good mm, for I'm very that condition. Interested, yeah. So yeah. C. buckthorn, an excellent source of omega-7. Uh, so I would probably say it's worth exploring, and the feedback that I've had in that regard is very positive. So I think it's probably a good option. And while it's not considered an essential fatty acid in the same way that omega-3 or omega-6 is, its therapeutic value, I think, is, is enormous, particularly for mucous membrane health uh, and certainly skin health as well, mm. um, particularly eyes as well, dry eyes. Yeah, all, all related to fatty acid metabolism. In that exactly. Yeah. And going along that line, naturopathically, there's no way that I would ever consider looking at managing a skin condition without including herbs. I mm. love my herbs. So, what herbs have you investigated? And indeed, things like, or I've got a, this is more a question for you things like the mineral selenium, which has been used topically. What about internally? And also things like digestive enzymes that have been used in vitiligo quite successfully. I don't know what part that plays in seborrheic dermatitis. Can mm. you <clears throat> take our listeners through these? Do you want me to address the herbs first? Yeah. Okay. The, a, this is one of these 20-part <laughs> questions that yeah. I ask. Yeah. Look, so I explored some herbal options when I was studying, and it, I, I suppose I chose that route first because everything that we were learning, that uh, you need to address the gut, you need to address the liver, and these are the traditional herbs that you will use. So I, I would have done, uh, I suppose, gone into using uh, quite traditional type herbs, things like burdock. Um, I would have used um, oats as well. Yes. So those types of herbs, look, I've got to say that I got no success from mm -hmm. those. Uh, and look, the condition was pretty, it, it was far down the track. And I think that it probably would have been good had I added it to the mix of nutrients and other therapies. Yeah, that's the thing. So uh, I, I didn't have a lot of success at the time with herbs, and that's not to say that they aren't effective, but they probably need to be used within a broader context. Um, with regards to selenium, look, I haven't, I haven't explored selenium, at least topically. Selenium is something that I take anyway as part of just a broad-spectrum multivitamin. So the way that I get my zinc and my B6 is just by having a good, broad and high-dose um, multivitamin and mineral supplement. And that sort of tends to address other symptoms associated with zinc deficiency as well. My skin improves in general, my nails improve, that sort of thing. Uh, but what is interesting is the gut side of things. And you did mention digestive enzymes. And while I have or have had no obvious digestive symptoms, uh, there, there is, I'm convinced that the gut really is the source of my issue. And one of the things that I think helps to support that is, like well, I've mentioned a few things that I experimented when I was going through college, one of the things I did was actually a 10-day fast. So oh, really? I, I did what was, it wasn't a juice fast, but what I did was dilute vegetable juices and combine that with a, a water-soluble fiber supplement. I actually use bentonite clay as well. Yeah. And, and a mineral broth. So I would actually make a mineral broth out of just organic vegetables. Mm -hmm. And I would just, I would have a regime for 10 days where I would have these diluted vegetable juices throughout the day and just sip on a mineral broth at night, supplemented with these fibers. And the transformation that that had as far as not just my skin, but my general health is concerned, particularly my mental clarity, is something that I will never forget. Mm. So this was the first real um, tangible uh, uh, example of how the gut really affects my wider health. And it was a very sort of personal thing. Mm. So within about five days of actually having not eaten anything besides these very thin mineral broths, my skin started to improve beyond my imagination. And I mean, not only did the seborrheic dermatitis disappear, but it just turned into healthy, glowing skin. 
So that told me something either about the microflora balance in my gut and also something in my diet is contributing to this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering there, certainly you're feeding the microbiota different things and, and you said plant-based type foods. Um, so you were certainly getting good nutrition there, enough to run a body. You Probably enough minerals. Yeah, but you yeah. weren't doing a, a dangerous type fast, you know, this sort of, you know, air, you know, what do you call them? Breatharian sort of thing. No. <laughs> um, you, you were getting enough minerals in there. You would have been getting other nutrients in there with the vegetable broth, mm. but it was based on vegetable matter, not animal matter. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering about A, changing your microbiota. Certainly we know that mm -hmm. within days you can do that. Yep. Um, but I wonder if you might also have been changing any substrates that might have been um, adding to uh, certain constituents of sebum production that the fungi on the skin might have been feeding off. Yeah. Look, I've certainly read uh, I've read studies to say that the, for people who suffer from seborrheic dermatitis, the fatty acid constituents of sebum uh, is different to someone who doesn't suffer from, uh, from seborrheic dermatitis. I would probably guess that it really has to do with your ability to metabolize those fatty acids yeah. in the first place. Right. Um, I think that as far as diets are concerned, we all have, if we're eating a Western diet, we all have pretty much the same amount of omega-6 to omega-3, and that might vary in ratio from 10 to 1 to 20 to 1, depending on where or what you're into. But uh, I, I actually think it's the way that I metabolize those fatty acids. But not having too many fatty acids in my diet, I probably would have increased my omega-3s through all of that vegetable consumption, those green leafy uh, mm, sure. vegetables, which is actually a rich source of omega-3. Higher up, yeah. Um, so perhaps I, I altered my fatty acid mm. balance in my diet, but I probably think that what was likely to happen was that I altered my microflora and probably downregulated uh, an inflammatory response with my innate immune system that had a systemic effect. And, and that probably also influenced how my skin was reacting as well. So looking back at this infective agent, you know, the, the Malassezia species, what about, uh, you know, topical antifungals like maybe, uh, you know, calendula cream or, or you know, a tea tree oil. I've been, I, I'm always really, really um, gentle with tea tree oil. People... Like I used to see these 5% creams and things and they'd burn the heck out of people. Mm. I, I would go really, really gently with tea tree, but it's certainly an antifungal and it's got evidence for that. Mm. So things like calendula, tea tree, padaco, um, what about things that might contain caprylic acid like the coconut oil or even intaking things like uh, medium chain triglycerides, which have got high caprylate? Mm. How, have you used they that? Are, they are antifungal and internally... I, ha I remember trying that, so medium-chain triglycerides. Yeah. Uh, I'd found minimal success with that. I did try using a variety of different oils, thinking that I just need to moisturize my skin, and, and including things like coconut oil. I remember using squalene topically, and it, while it had uh, an immediate effect in terms of moisturizing the skin, it actually made the seborrheic dermatitis worse. Squalene topically? Yes, I actually opened up a capsule. And the reason I did that is uh, I remember that someone... I got a massage at, uh, at a holiday resort somewhere and mm. they were using squalene oil in their oil mix and it surprisingly really improved my skin. What did it smell like? It didn't smell of anything. Really? It was fine. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. No, it, it was really neutral in, right. in smell. So I started opening capsules and just putting that on my skin after a shower. And while in the early part of that 
it was uh, it, it seemed to have a beneficial effect. It actually made it worse. And in fact, after then, I started to realize that using oils generally made it worse. Since then, I've discovered that in fact, what you're doing is you're feeding. Yeah the organism yep. with the oil. And even if it does have some antifungal properties, you're giving them a the substrate, substrate that mm. ultimately they use as food and they will ultimately overcome that antifungal action and proliferate. So I don't use oils on my skin at all. What I have found to be most beneficial and cheapest uh, is sea salt. And oh, really? that and that is- that Topically. Works topically. So you make a brine. So what you do is you, you get what is quite a reasonable scoop of- what I like to use is uh, is Celtic sea salt. And the reason is because it's just so rich in minerals. So it's not just your basic refined salt. Mm. It has been reported to have therapeutic properties in its own right. But I make, a, as I said, uh, quite a thick brine out of this. And I actually let it sit in the water over days and it actually starts to change in its constituency and its texture. So it becomes a little bit creamy. Mm -hmm. in, in, and I just wow. use I just use after a shower I will just use that as a face wash and I'll just leave that on for a minute or so and just brush my teeth and get ready, and that has its own antifungal properties. But because it's not oil based, it doesn't make it doesn't feed the organisms further. And while I mentioned that taking evening primrose oil or a GLA supplement with the zinc, magnesium, and B six is effective to about eighty or ninety percent, doing that sea salt treatment on top of that means that I've pretty much just eliminated all symptoms of seborrheic dermatitis. Wow. Uh, so I've found that the most beneficial, and I have tried quite a few topical treatments, none to this success. Speaking with Ananda Mani recently, and she's got a real name for treating difficult skin conditions. It'll be interesting to investigate what her treatments involve with seborrheic dermatitis, but she really pushes seasonal eating. How important is that to you? Look, I, I think that is a very important aspect and something that we've lost as a culture uh, tremendously. Uh, as a family, we grow our own food as much as possible and we've got our veggie patch. I think we've got now four raised uh, veggie beds. Yeah. And, uh, and we grow things according to the seasons. And that means that you're really, I suppose, uh, you're quite conscious of what's available at the season and you yeah. use those foods that are available to you. And I, I'm convinced that as the season changes and the foods, different foods become available, certainly our body also adapts to the needs around those seasons as well. And w by eating those foods, we're also changing our microbiota. And as, as, right. as Mark Donahue has often mentioned, the microbiota, in fact, nothing in our body is static. It changes and it changes according to the seasons and our environment and where we are in life. And that's certainly the case with the food that is available to us, depending on the season as well. So when the foods change, we eat the foods and microbiota changes and suddenly our metabolism and our immune system changes and adapts accordingly. So it's not about just maintaining a static diet or, or even trying to maintain a static physiology. It's about adapting to those changes and going with those seasons. And it's really an ebb and flow type effect. It's mm. just a larger body clock. I think one of the things that you bring is that like you really do embrace the true naturopathic principles. I sit here in my nursing history <laughs> and I'm not a, 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 a poster child of naturopathic principles at all. Um, whereas you really have embraced naturopathy, what it is and, and the f sort of philosophy of it. 
and the treatments come from that. And I, you know, I think you know, you're a much better specimen than I in the naturopathic world, I've got to say, of health. And I, I really think that's such an interesting story to help guide our listeners, practitioners, through a treatment regime for their patients. And it's giving me some really good insights, certainly for me to take home and uh, start um, instituting myself. Thanks, Danny. No, that's a pleasure. Thank you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.